Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so happy you're joining us once again for another episode. This is episode 78. Uh, we are coming to you on June 7th, 2020, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time. I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, guys, how's it going? Fantastic. Pretty, pretty miserable. Well, that, that's about as far apart as you could possibly get. Well, uh, let's uh, hop right into uh, Zach. What are you drinking to uh, fix that mood of yours? Well, I'm miserable because this is the time of year when it sucks living in the Midwest. And every day here has been 90 degrees and it's miserable and I hate it. And this house that I live in now is really old and there's no insulation. And I, I usually have a... Um, I have, a, I have alcohol, don't worry, but I'm also showing you my water to indicate that I put ice cubes in it about maybe three minutes ago and they've all melted. Ridiculous. But I do have a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale that will probably stay cold for about another four minutes. So I need to drink it really fast. Are you recording outside or something? I mean... No, it's, if it is that hot in my house with air conditioning on, imagine how hot it is outside. Yeah, it's 60 okay. and raining here. That's why that's why Ichiro had the famous quote about, you know, hell is uh, being a rat in a sock in Kansas City in August or something like that. It was something like that. I don't think that was an exact quote, but we'll go with it. It was Fair close. Phrase. <laughs> Fair phrase. Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I got my old Hunter Rye Canadian whiskey, 90 proof. Still's good. Good stuff, eh? Hey. See, see what I did there? See what I did there? Canadian whiskey. I do. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. Uh, I've got uh, my latest brew is uh, Good Life Brewery out of Bend. This is their Comatose IPA. So, uh, it's good stuff. I like it's it. It's good stuff. Nice and strong. So, uh, I probably should have drunk it last time. Uh, that's when we were, that's when that we were all doing it. Yeah, no this this one is uh this one's eight and a half I think, so. But yeah, it's pretty good. All right, well uh let's uh let's not waste any more time. Let's get into what we've been watching. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. And let's see here, Zach, I'm gonna go to you first. What have you been watching? All right, well, you know, like I said, it's just been miserable here. Movies are the few things in life that can dependably cheer you up, unless they suck. But fortunately, this week, I was able to watch two movies that were outstanding and really lifted my spirits in these difficult, difficult times. So um, one is pretty obscure. The other is pretty well known. I'll start with the obscure one. Um, 
For 15 years, I've been waiting to see this movie, okay? It, it, it's mythical in my brain. Um, it uh, is a movie that I read about in high school. I always wanted to see it. When I worked in Seattle over the summer of 2009, I got a, I got a membership to Scarecrow Video in Seattle because they had a VHS copy of this movie. Unfortunately, I did not have a VHS player to play it. There were no copies at Movie Madness in Portland, no copies in Lawrence anywhere. Thank you, Jeff Bezos, for Amazon Prime coming up with random ass foreign movies on Amazon Prime and the random ass foreign movie that I've been waiting for 15 years to watch that finally came on is an Italian movie winner of the uh, uh, jury prize I think or critics award at the 1992 Cannes Film Festival it is Il Ladro di Bambini translated to The Stolen Children by Gianni Emilio I've wanted to see this movie forever. No one's ever heard of this movie. It does have over a thousand votes, curiously enough, on IMDb, so I couldn't have put it in our list a couple weeks ago. Um, it tells the story of uh, a uh, police officer named Antonio, and at the beginning of the movie, he is assigned to basically escort these t these two young kids, this brother and sister named Rosetta and Luciano, from Milan in northern Italy to Sicily because their mother has been uh, really aggressively abusing them, and so the state has removed them out of their house, and so this police officer, he's in, you know, he's in his like late 20s, early 30s. He's never really been around kids. He has to escort them um, and to to this uh, basically this orphanage. Um, this is a movie that sounds like it's a really comic premise, and there are some moments of levity in it and of comedy. But um, it's also very much about the victimhood of these kids who have suffered a lot of abuse, particularly the daughter. And um, it's also about uh, the character study. At first, the kids are very distrustful of this strange police officer who's kind of come out of nowhere and pushed them around from train station to train station. Um, it's very much a road movie, too, kind of in the tradition of Alice in the Cities and Paper Moon. Um, they gradually forge a relationship with each other um, that's very, I would say, pure and authentic, which is not something that the kids are used to in their lives. It's a movie that totally would have been butchered if it had been made in the United States. It totally would have turned into a soap opera, melodrama, corny, how should we say, Disney movie, like the Willie T. Ribbs story Disney movie with Chadwick Boseman. I'm sorry, I didn't want to bring that up again, but I had to. Okay, well, I'm glad this wasn't a, a Disney idea. movie. It's a terrible idea. Adam agrees with me. Um, but anyway... This movie, you know, I've been waiting for it for 15 years. It lived up to my expectations. That's one of the great things about movies is that, you know, I had no clue what this movie was going to be like, but I knew it was going to be good. And it was so different from the way I, w I thought it was going to be. I mean, it was depressing and foreign, you know, like a Zack movie, but it was really good. I cannot recommend this movie high enough. It gets four-starred. It is my new number one movie of 1992. Again, The Stolen Children, Iladro di Bambini, available on Amazon Prime. A fantastic, fantastic film. Either of you heard of it by chance? Nope. I have not heard of it. All right. Well, it's it's worth checking out. And Scarecrow Video, if you're out there, get that VHS out there, man. Let the viewers decide. Okay, second movie I watched. Uh, technically not a movie. Um, I think we can call it a miniseries. Um, but it's one that uh, came out last year in 2019. And had I seen it back then, I would have found a way to put it on my top uh, movies of 2019 list because it is just that good. And it's very timely right now. And that is Ava DuVernay's four-part series, When They See Us, which is which was made for Netflix last year, which is uh, basically the dramatization of the Central Park 
uh, jogger case, the infamous case in 1989 where, uh, where five um, uh, teenage boys, uh, all of whom uh, were uh, not white, um, essentially got railroaded by the, by the New York City Police Department um, and falsely accused of raping this white jogger. And uh, they were coerced into giving false testimony and false confessions at the police station. And as a result, all five of them uh, went to jail for several years for a crime that they most obviously did not commit. Um, Ava DuVernay is a great director, and this is, uh, I think, awesome storytelling. Um, the first two episodes are, I guess, in uh, you could say conventional in their storytelling as they kind of introduce the setup of the night that the jogger is raped and the boys are brought in and questioned and essentially kept against their will. The second episode goes into the trial. I loved actually the last two episodes because like great movies, it gets better and better. The third episode is really about um, years later when the boys are now men and they are able to get out of jail. But the truth, what the, sh what the show really shows is that you never really leave jail when you're when you're um, convicted of a crime like this falsely is that you may be out of prison but you can't get a job your family doesn't trust you your personal relationships are shot um, and you're victimized because of the publicity around the case the fourth episode is about one of the boys um, his name uh, is Corey Wise and he actually stayed in prison longer than the other boys and they kind of get into that it is, I cannot recommend this series uh, high enough. I know Ken Burns made a documentary about uh, the Central Park uh, jogger case. I've not seen that. I, I want to see it after this, but um, this is outstanding acting. Really strong cast in this of um, names that you might recognize like John Leguizamo and uh, Felicity Huffman, um, but also younger actors whose names you maybe don't know. I think the MVP of, of this cast uh, I think pretty clearly goes to the actor who plays Corey Rise, which is Jarrell Jerome, who you might remember as Kevin, 16-year-old Kevin from Moonlight. He's actually the only actor who plays uh, his character from a, a teenager to an adult. He's awesome in this movie. He should have won an Emmy. Actually, he may have won an Emmy. I'm not sure. This is a really, really awesome, impactful series that I would recommend to everyone, not just right now because of what's going on in the world, but it's just uh, really well made. Would have made my end-of-the-year list last year when I should have watched it. So check it out. When they... Uh, 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 when they see us. All right. Very nice. Very nice. Either of you seen that? Haven't seen that. Nope. No. I've it's heard of it though. That out. one I have heard of. <laughs> All right. Well, Todd, what have you been watching this week? Uh, well, the best thing I saw this week was uh, this documentary from 2014 called Red Army by Gabe Polsky. It's about the russian hockey team uh it's so it's telling it completely from their perspective I, I i saw it uh described as being the letters from iwo jima to uh to like flags of our fathers being miracle or something like that it's the the whole thing is being uh they're interviewing slava fedosov who is like the captain of, of the great teams in the 80s from russia and the what makes the that an interesting story is that these people that were on the team first had to become officers and then they got on the team. So they had, were pretty much like slaves to the state. And uh, Fedosov was one who eventually de defected and ended up in the, the NHL along with a group of other ones that all ended up on the Red Wings that won a couple titles in the late nineties. But it's a really, really interesting documentary. And it's one that I had, uh, I had seen the title of it several times. I didn't actually know what it was about. And then I just uh, randomly caught it and it was really good. It's a, it's a solid, Three and a half star movie. It's in my top twenty of uh, twenty fourteen. Nice, nice. All right. 
Well, for me, uh, I've got two things I want to report on. But before I, I do that, I just have to say yesterday, um, I had a rewatch yesterday of the movie Collateral. And man, that movie's so good. It had been a while since I'd watched it. But that movie is so, so good. Tom Cruise, one... I don't know if it's his best performance, but it might be his best role. Like, just so outside the box, but he's brilliant. And it's got a huge cast, too. Like, throwaway parts from Javier Bardem and Jason Statham. Mark Ruffalo's barely recognizable. But anyways, from 2004, Collateral. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Uh, So the two things I'm going to report on. First, I have uh, my anniversary movie of the week. So I'm going through watching a bunch of... Um, a bunch of Oscar nominees that I haven't seen yet. And for this week, uh, I went back 20 years to 2000 for a movie that had one Oscar nomination. It was for Best Makeup. You know when you're getting a movie that was only nominated for one Oscar and that Oscar was Makeup? You're not necessarily in for a great movie. And that was kind of the case here. This movie was The Cell, starring Jennifer Lopez, Vince Vaughn, and Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, this movie is, this is a trippy movie, and I don't really know how it got nominated for makeup. It didn't really quite make sense. But anyways, uh, it is kind of like Silence of the Lambs meets, like, early concept Inception, but a horror movie. Uh, so it, uh, Jennifer Lopez plays, um, a social worker, kind of child psychologist who has adopted or figured out this, uh, method of being able to go inside of, um, of children's minds to help them fit, work out their problems. And what happens is, uh, throughout the course of the movie, there's a serial killer played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who is really interesting as a serial killer since he ends up being like one of the leads in Law and Order. So it's kind of... A funny juxtaposition there. And um, he kidnaps women, kind of like Buffalo Bill, a very similar thing there. But uh, anyways, he has a medical issue that ends up making him like comatose for the rest of his life. But um, he had kidnapped another woman and they know enough about this serial killer that when a woman was kidnapped, they could put a clock on it before she died. And so um, he's comatose, but this woman had been kidnapped and they don't know where she is. So they hire Jennifer Lopez to come in, the FBI does, to try and hack into the serial killer's mind to find where where his last potential victim is hiding. Um, And uh, it's really bizarre. It's got a lot of crazy visuals in it. it. Like I said think early like early versions of what inception could have been but then yeah you've got like a buffalo bill type monster on the other side from silence of the lambs um overall it doesn't really quite work because it jumps around kind of all over the place and it there is a good movie in there somewhere it just didn't find it so it's a two-star movie um interesting concept but didn't really pay off uh, Jennifer Lopez isn't that great in it. Vince Vaughn isn't that great in it. D'Onofrio's kind of a monster, crazy person, which is rare to see out of a guy like him. But, uh, yeah, two stars for The Cell. Either of you guys seen that? Nope. I have. I, I've saw. I've seen it within the last four or five years. 
Um, I liked the movie more than you did. Ebert put it as one of his 10 best of 2000, so maybe that influenced my opinion of it, um, although I didn't love it as much as he did. I thought it had a pretty original concept, and visually it was just, like you said, an amazing movie. The director of that movie, Tarsim, went on to direct another movie in the 2000s called The Fall, which is on my best of 2008 list, or 2000s, whenever it came out. I think it was 2008. But um, visually it's a spectacular movie. I would agree the story's pretty flimsy, but... Yeah. It was an interesting time when Hollywood was like getting kind of experimental with visuals and you had directors like Julie Taymor making movies and Tarsem and but yeah, overall I can't totally disagree with your review. Do you do you like that comparison? It's Silence of the Lambs meets Inception. There's there's a lot of Silence of the Lambs in the movie. I do remember that. And I remember Hank from Breaking Bad being in it. Yes, <clears throat> Hank from ba- Breaking Bad is uh, but obviously plays a cop because what else would he play? Obviously. Yeah, he's in <laughs> yeah. That should be your milestone movie. That, you know, every every movie where Hank uh, Schrader or plays a cop, where Hank Schrader plays a cop, that would never that would never end. I actually noticed his name in the opening credits, and then as soon as he popped on screen, I texted Todd, and I'm like Hank's in this movie. He's a cop, and he's like, "Well, of course." <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so that was the first thing. The second thing is much newer, and it's but it's not a movie. It's a TV show. Um, last night, I finally made it through uh, the entire first season of Space Force, uh, the new uh, Steve Carell Netflix show that came out on uh, came out last weekend. Uh, ten episodes, half hour each. Um, it's pretty stupid. Um, it's kind of it. It tries to be The Office. Like if like if they're making something similar, but I, I was trying to figure out what what it was missing, and I think because it's you know Steve Carell, Greg Daniels, who is one of the creators of The Office, are the ones behind this this show, and it's got a lot of things that feel like The Office or kind of that that sense of setting something up and just being ridiculous inside it. But what it's missing is it's missing a gym, it's missing the straight man that can look at everything that's going on and see how ridiculous it is and comment on it. There's no straight man in this. They're all insane. And it's just a comedy of errors all throughout. There's some really funny parts uh, and there's some really just like annoying parts. Um, Steve Carell is, is pretty good. He plays General Mark Naird, who is uh, appointed as the new head of Space Force and has to try and get people to the moon. Um I love John Malkovich. He's really good in this, and the chemistry between the two of them is pretty good. The most annoying person in the cast is Ben Schwartz, who plays uh, the Space Force uh, media consultant. He's horrible. Um, But uh, he's just annoying in everything that he says and does. But I, I... I mean, I'm curious in it. I'll watch another season if it comes out. I don't know if I'll go back and watch this just for fun. But uh, it's... For someone who loves space as much as I do, it really dumbs down and and makes makes the whole like NASA part of it or that just really stupid. And then you add in the fact that every character in it is just a dimwit that it it's it gets to be too much stupid comedy and not enough, you know, uh, working in different levels. Uh, the best scenes might be the the scenes with the Joint Chiefs of Staff where you've got um Steve Carell is the head of Space Force. You've got Noah Emmerich as the head of the Air Force. Let's see here. Jane Lynch is the head of the Navy. Um, oh, who else is in there? Um, you've got, uh, oh, the one guy from uh, from Drew Carey. Is his name Diedrich Bader? Yeah, Diedrich Bader is the head of, uh, of the Army, I think. 
Patrick Warburton's in there too. I mean, it, and so it's just this room of just comedy awesomeness. The best, the best part of the show. Shout out to the late Fred Willard. He plays um, Steve Carell's dad. He has a, like three amazing scenes where he's just losing his mind on the phone. And that's the best part. But overall, fairly stupid. Worth checking out if you're if you like Steve Carell and um, and you're a fan of that kind of comedy. Have any of you guys seen any Space Force yet? Nope. Your review kind of sounds like Rocket Man, though, and I know you love that movie, so it's kind of weird to hear that you give it lukewarm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It it the thing is, Rocket Man is stupid and knows it's stupid and leans into it. Where Space Force, you could tell at times it's trying to be smart. And it just never gets there. I want to know more about your beef with uh, Ben Schwartz. It sounds like you have some really unresolved uh, hostility toward him. It, his character is the most annoying part of the show, by far. By far. Well, just it, horrible. It's curious because he was also arguably the most annoying character on the show Parks and Rec, which I think actually had a lot of annoying characters. But I've never watched Parks and Rec, actually. Maybe that's just his specialty. Actually. Yeah, I've never watched Parks and Rec, and if that's that might just be his thing is just being annoying. But I don't find. I don't know. I mean, I've seen his. I've seen him do stand up with. It was a improv stand up thing with Thomas Middleditch, and I thought he was really funny. But I don't know. Uh, yeah, he he just nope nope. Well, and oh, he was he was the voice of Sonic this year too in the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. He was really good at in that. But I don't know. This character, he's just. He's just leaning so much further into the stupidity of it all that it just, it just is horrible. Every time he's on screen, he makes your eyes roll. Except there was one, there's one scene where he's like running a press conference and uh, he's, he's the one directing or saying, okay, question from you. And then they answer the questions like that. You know what? That was a great answer to a really stupid question. Thank you for that. Okay. Who's next? And then, and so they, that was like his, his shining moment. But other than that, it's. Not nope, nope. <laughs> so yeah, if if you're bored and and need something to throw on, I will say the pilot might be one of the worst episodes of the season. So don't judge it by the pilot. You got to get into it a little bit, and then once you're into it a little bit, you've kind of got to stay with it. So it kind of hooks you that way. But yeah, Space Force feels like every show is like that. Every show is a terrible pilot. Yeah. And you just need to accept it and move on. There are some that, that hook you with the pilot, though, and then progressively get worse, and then you're stuck. <laughs> okay, anyways, let's move on. Uh, because we got a lot more to talk about, including our uh, our featured review this week. And for our featured review, we are uh, going back in time to uh, the 50s to check out um, an Oscar nominee that none of us had seen. So, uh, And it was free streaming on Amazon Prime, so we decided to check it out. So, Todd, I'm going to you first. Tell us all about The Barefoot Contessa. Okay, it came out in 1954, directed by John L. Minkowitz, and written by uh, him as well. It's a sort of a nostalgic Hollywood movie about a washed-up, filmmaker played by Humphrey Bogart his name's Harry Dawes and it's about him and his financial crew sort of uh, Oscar winner Edmund O'Brien and Kirk Edwards 
Uh, and they travel to Spain to look at this flamenco dancer who they want to have star in their movie. It's played by Ava Gardner. She plays a character named Maria Vargas. Uh, and most of it is told in flashback because the very first scene is at her funeral. And uh, so all the people in attendance sort of take turns tell talking about her and reminiscing about uh, what she meant to them. And their stories are sometimes intense or sometimes mysterious, sometimes humorous and sad. Um, I think Mankiewicz treats it differently than most directors would because it's essentially like a film noir. Uh, and... Uh, it's all, but like a, if a film noir was in color, it's got monotone narration. It's got really just like rain-soaked settings. Uh, Ava Gardner gives one of her best performances in this. Uh, and even though she's the wrong nationality, I think she's uh, amazing. It has a really wide range of emotions. Humphrey Bogart, I think, is sort of miscast. I, I don't really buy him as like this genius director. I thought that should have been more like a, a Cagney because like uh, Bogart just kind of looks like a detective the whole movie. Edmund O'Brien stands out, and I understand why he won the Oscar, but he stands out mostly because he's just, like, sweating the entire movie, and he looks like he walked out of a different movie. Like, he belongs in westerns, and uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, I think, is his best performance, but, uh, yeah, he just, he looks like he's from a different movie, and uh, he definitely sticks out. But my favorite supporting part was um, from Warren uh, Stevens, who plays uh, the, you know, he's the richest man in South America, and he's just kind of a pain in the ass to everybody, and I, I, I kind of like watching his character. Uh, it ha The movie has a slick style, but I feel like it's more easy to appreciate than it is to actually love. It, I'm, I'm always up for an old, like, inside Hollywood kind of picture, and, I mean, this is pretty good. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Right, It's twists right up until the end. I give it three stars. Uh, it's a, yeah, totally solid movie. I, I'm surprised it didn't get more Oscar nominations, honestly. All right. All right. Zach, how about you? Uh, okay. So, um, you know, when we do the come to the stable uh, features, you know, we, we, we hit a home run with our first pick, which was come to stable, you know, because we all enjoyed that movie. It was fun. It was like the perfect example of why we do this segment. The Barefoot Contessa is why this segment is difficult to do. Okay. Because when a movie gets an Oscar nomination, or in this case, an Oscar win, and it has a cast like this, like Humphrey Bogart, Ava Gardner, um, you know, Joseph Mankiewicz, and it's not remembered. That's usually a bad sign, okay? That's usually like a red flag that there's a reason that this movie is not particularly remembered. And uh, unlike Todd, uh, I did not find a lot of merit in this movie at all. Um, I feel like the perfect metaphor for the storytelling in this movie is in the introductory scene to the Ava Gardner character where she's dancing on stage and apparently giving this incredible performance that is transfixing the audience, which includes Edmund O'Brien and, and Humphrey Bogart in the audience. And, you know, he shows all the people's reactions, but we never actually see the dance. And that is a perfect metaphor for this movie because all these characters are talking around the main events in this movie. So, like, we never see her dance. We never see uh, Ava Gardner launch her career in Hollywood. It's always just talked about kind of behind the curtain or behind this, the stage. And um, as a result, we can never really buy, at least I can never really buy into Ava Gardner being this successful actress. The timeline of this movie is very hard to figure out, too. Sometimes it jumps two years ahead. And then there are other scenes that are extremely protracted that last... You know, it feels like uh, several hours. 
Um, I think this also points to the biggest problem in the movie, which is Joseph Mankiewicz's script, and it's a reminder why I've only enjoyed two of Joseph Mankiewicz's movies, All About Eve and Sleuth. All of his other movies I've seen suffer from the same problem that this movie does, which is it, it's horribly overwrought. Like, it's so glib. that it, it takes 25, it feels like it takes 25 minutes in this movie to explain one little plot point. Um, or one beat. Uh, it's the, the dialogue is, is excessive, and I think it's because Mankiewicz really likes his dialogue. He tries to put insert all these kind of pithy little sayings and metaphors, especially from the Humphrey Bogart character, but they really don't fall. I, I guess I was intrigued in the first 30 minutes of this movie because I, I did want to see where it was going, but it just devolves. Um, it kind of becomes this, by the end, it's it's almost like this sort of Peyton Place-esque, um, you know, very trashy look at, at at Hollywood. It's also really hard to not think about all about Eve in this movie. I mean, this is the, the narration, right right down in the narration, right down to, this is basically all about Eve in Hollywood. And it's so much less effective because you don't have the Betty Davis character and you don't have these other characters that really made all about Eve so memorable. You just have this kind of attempt at the dialogue and attempt at the tone which really kind of fails so um all in all th this was a pretty major disappointment for me i'm giving it one and a half stars it was um, it was pretty unbearable to watch especially in the second half especially when i mean it almost verged on mystery science theater 3000 territory i thought by the end of this movie it was it, it, it was pr it was pretty bad i all knew right. todd i had i thought that todd would like it though i had a feeling he would have more respect for it because you're also a fan of the bad and the beautiful right todd so yeah and this movie i think owes a little bit of to, to that as well well, Mankiewicz's best movie, I think, is A Letter to Three Wives, but, you know. Now, see, I thought that suffered for the same thing as this movie. It was just talking, talking, talking excessively, and it got really boring after a while. Okay. Well, Todd gives it three. Zach gives it one and a half. I give it two and a half, right in, right in between. Perfect. As always, that's how it always works. Um, I, I'm And I'm definitely somewhere in between. I, I thought... Um, Ava Gardner's performance, I thought, was, was really strong. I... I she was like the one character and she's the focus of the movie. So it makes sense. The one character you could really get like feel and get into. Um, but at the same time, what Zach said was right on all of the action in this, in this movie is in the narration when usually the narration is allowing you to get into the head of the characters. Like Todd, you even mentioned it kind of felt kind of film noirish, but in film noir, you see the action, and then the narration tells you what the characters are thinking. In this, it's narration to move along the plot, and then you have scenes, some of which are ridiculously long. Like the scene yes. with Ava Gardner and Humphrey Bogart on the porch of her parents' house but when she decides to go and do the screen test. That's like a 15-minute <laughs> scene! It is way too long, and all it is is it's, it's all character development. There is nothing that moves the plot forward other than, um, other than the the narration, and that's what kills this movie. Um, the characters, in the end, the characters are compelling. Um, like I said, especially Ava Gardner's character. Um, I I like Humphrey Bogart in this, but I do hear Todd your point. I mean, that's just how Humphrey Bogart looks. It's kind of hard for him to look anything like anything other than a detective. Um, Edmund O'Brien, uh, I think. Uh, should have come off of this and played like the brother of Ernest Borgnine in a movie. Um, I think that would have yeah, fit well. But um, yeah, two and a half stars. Uh, compelling, compelling characters, but man, the storytelling was was off kilter, 
and made it made it hard to really dig your teeth into. So, a couple interesting points about this movie. We're reviewing it because it did win an Academy Award. Edmund O'Brien won an Academy Award and for Best Supporting Actor, and he was going up against three actors from On the Waterfront. Oh, wow. Um, I think he doesn't hold a candle to any of those actors, in particular Carl Malden, who I think is maybe gives the best performance in On the Waterfront. I'm not sure if they're like I, I it, on the waterfront won eight Academy Awards that year, so I'm not sure why this category was the one area you would think probability wise, you know, it's sixty percent it, yeah, chance of winning here. So I'm not sure what they saw in Edmund O'Brien that wasn't there in the other three performances from on the waterfront, but it mystifies me a little bit. Do you think those three just canceled each other out? That that's maybe a possibility. I'm not sure. Well, Carl Molden won. For a few years before, right? That's true. For Streetcar Named Desire, yeah. All right. Well, as always, we're kind of split on this. We've got one that loves it, one that hates it, one that's in between. Uh, so uh, let's go to let's go to Adam to see what he thinks he sent in his review as well. Uh, so he says, uh, knowing nothing about this film going in other than what IMDb has as a description, uh, I, I was optimistic. I kind of thought this movie had the makings to be a little better than The African Queen. Uh, while the film isn't on the same level as that film, I did enjoy uh, most of my time watching it. I really enjoyed every time Bogart was on screen. Uh, throughout his interactions with Ava Gardner... Uh, oh, his interactions with Ava Gardner were the best parts of the film. also enjoyed Elizabeth Sellers as well. I actually just looked on the IMDb page. Elizabeth Sellers, who played Jerry, who is Humphrey Bogart's girlfriend, actually just died this last January at the age of 98. So um, there's someone that was in this movie that was still around for uh, up until January. Uh, to my knowledge, this was my first Ava Gardner film, and I'm a fan. She was headstrong leading lady. Uh, stunning and wanted more scenes with her. I do feel the film does struggle in the middle. It gets a little uninteresting at times. When you don't have some of the characters you enjoy, you find yourself uh, waiting for them to appear. I feel the movie has a strong opening and solid closing, and the middle was a little more... If the middle was more engaging, I could see myself wanting to watch this again. I'm in between two grades at the moment. He's given it three stars because he did like the performances and um, did have some humor that he appreciated as well. So, I mean, he's kind of in a similar spot as... Uh, he's, like, in between me and Todd on that. So, uh, so yeah. 2.75 stars. 2.75 <laughs> stars. <laughs> Isn't that how many points he has in trivia? I, it might be. It might be. All right. Well, uh, we're kind of all over the place on that, but it is an Oscar winner. It is easy to find. So if you like some classic, uh, some classic film... And uh, some classic movie stars like Humphrey Bogart, Ava Gardner, want to see an Oscar-winning performance from uh, from Edmund O'Brien. The Barefoot Contessa, streaming now on Amazon Prime. You can check it out at any time. And one interesting note about The Barefoot Contessa is it's also the name of a cooking show on the Food Network. I don't know if you knew that. That was my wife's but first reaction to it, actually. 
Now, The Cooking Show, if I can review that for a second, that is mm, probably my second favorite show on the Food Network. Really good show starring Ina Garden, who uh, worked in like the Clinton administration. Like She worked in some kind of political capacity before she became a, a, a restaurant owner and TV personality. It's actually like a really good cooking show. It's like an intellectual cooking show. She doesn't do this, this kind of spe- spectacle bullshit that you see on other shows. She's like really kind of an intellectual about food. And she talks a lot about why you would put certain ingredients where and it's yeah you know, she's a little bougie you know she lives on Long Island but it's 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 definitely worth a watch I would watch the Barefoot Contessa TV show over this movie any day. So you said it's your second. What's your top? Oh, Iron Chef for sure. Oh, okay, okay. Nothing beats Iron Chef. Give me give me Guy Fieri and I'm good. Triple D or Triple G, I'm good. Diners, drive-ins, and dives. Guys, grocery games. I'm all over that. Di- I would diners, drive-ins, and dives is is great. He's a he's a great personality. This is how we get through the quarantine is with Food Network, man. It is. I mean, it is. It is saving lives. It, it it's great stuff. Todd, you should check these out. Okay, let's move on from our movie reviews now to our Mount Rushmore for the week. Spotlight. And for this one. Uh, we've been doing Mount Rushmore is looking at uh, the last decade and looking at Oscar winners of the last decade and putting together the best four from that category. Uh, we went through most of the major categories, so now we're going to go to some of the more technical ones. And this one I'm really excited for. I had a lot of fun revisiting some of this. We're looking at the Mount Rushmore of best original song winners from the 2010s. And uh, so... Looking at that, here are the songs that we are talking about. We're talking about We Belong Together from Toy Story 3, Man or Muppet from The Muppets, Skyfall from Skyfall, Let It Go from Frozen, Glory from Selma, Writings on the Wall from Spectre, City of Stars from La La Land, Remember Me from Coco, Shallow from A Star is Born, and I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocket Man. All right, I'm going to go first on this one. So we each put forth our, our non-negotiable, and then we debate on what we think the fourth one should be. Uh, I actually went through, and I know Todd usually on these ranks his from top to bottom, so I did the same thing this time. Um, I think there's a there's like a bottom three, and like a top four, and then the there's like three that are just kind of in the middle. Uh, but I'm going to go with the very top one on my list, uh, and that is Glory from Selma. Um, for several reasons. One, I think John Legend and Common are some of the coolest Oscar winners of the last decade. Just to say that those two are Oscar winners is pretty great. Uh, but also when you look at that song, um, it was, uh, such an amazing song, such a moving song. And then you look at the topic of it and it was able to be a song, um, that was found in this historical drama yet, speak very much about today and was able to bridge that that gap and even looking at what's happening in our world today it speaks very much about what what's going on now too um it it's a song that i think is very timely i don't think it's a song that will uh i think it's a song that will end up being somewhat timeless in in the fact that it just talks about this struggle and the glory we'll feel when we come out of it uh it's uh it's just an amazing song. And um, so looking at the, the impact of it and the, uh, the film it came out of, 
the people who were behind it, uh, it it's it's got to be my my submission for for Mount Rushmore. So I'm going with Glory from Selma. We're gonna go to Todd next. Todd, what is your submission? Uh, the easy one to pick is Skyfall because I think it's maybe the second or third best Bond song ever, and I went I went through all of them, and I, I tried to remember more than, like, one lyric from the song, and there are only, like, four that I could, and, but, I mean, I've heard Skyfall so many times, it's a, it's a, it's like a perfect Bond song, and Adele is an awesome Oscar winner. It's, yeah, it, I mean, it fits the, it fits the style perfectly, and, uh, it's cool that it won. That's, that's my, easily my number one. Yeah, I, that that was that was my my close number two, and I was thinking about that song. When you look at Bond songs, you either have um, artists that are trying to make either a good song or a Bond song, and rarely is it a good Bond song. Like like Writings on the Wall is on here too. That that was a good song, but it didn't feel like a Bond song necessarily. But and and also like Live and Let Die, that doesn't feel like a Bond song. Skyfall feels like a Bond song, but it is just a dynamite song on top of that, too. So it, it, it's able to ride that line perfectly. I, I, love, I love my music. I, I like to talk about these things. Okay, so we've got, we've got Glory from Selma. We've got Skyfall from Skyfall. Zach, what is your submission? Yeah, absolutely no objections to either of those. Those are both really strong picks. And this is a really solid category that arguably is more impressive than the Best Actor and Best Actress winners. Because looking over all these songs again, some of them are really good. And it's it's hard to choose. Um, I think I'm going to go with uh, the song that is from probably my favorite film of this list. And that was Shallow from A Star Is Born. Um, I was a big fan of this movie. This was a, this was this is the song that you associate with the movie. It was in the trailer. I think Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper gave a very memorable live performance of it at that Oscar ceremony. It was the only award that that movie won. Arguably, I I thought you know it should have won several more awards. Um, and uh, you know it's a duet between the two uh, main characters in the film. It comes at a turning point in their relationship and her kind of upward trajectory to stardom um, and his downfall. And uh, it's just a classic in a movie that I think actually has a lot of really great songs in it. Um, and, uh, you know, when, whenever I, I think about that Oscars, I think about them on the stage. And then I think about Lady Gaga kind of, you know, nodding her head when uh, Olivia Coleman won the Oscar. That was a great moment, too. So Lady Gaga at the Oscars, always a, always a good thing. Maybe she could be a host someday. Ooh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, no arguments on Shallow. I mean, that that might be... If you're talking about like songs to be like popular that won that, I mean that that's that was a chart topping song on the radio uh, when it came out too. So you had you had that going for it. Alright, so we have Glory from Selma, Skyfall from Skyfall, Shallow from A Star is Born. Uh, we need a fourth. Before we get into that, Todd, I'm really curious, what are your bottom three? <laughs> uh my bottom is uh, I'm gonna love me again. My number nine is We Belong Together, and my number eight is Remember Me. Okay, so we're close. My my number my number eight is We Belong Together. My number nine is I'm Gonna Love Me Again. And my number ten is Writings on the Wall. Okay. That would be my bottom three as well, Terry. Yeah. I don't I don't remember Writings on the Wall. I don't either, well, and like I said, it was trying to be a good song, but it just never felt like a Bond song. And I was and, also looking at it, it was one of the more 
it was one of the more impressive um, lists that year of um, of nominees. And the fact that it's the one that came out of it was just kind of sad. Like it beat and it beat earned it from Fifty Shades. I mean, we could be talking about the weekend being an Oscar winner, but the big one is it beat the Lady Gaga song from the the Hunting Ground, the documentary. Uh, where she gave the just that powerhouse performance at the Oscars. You know, Joe Biden was there to introduce her, and then Sam Smith wins. And then Miss Speaks yes, said he was the first gay man to win an Oscar. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that was a <laughs> pretty big flub. I didn't remember that song either. I didn't remember uh, I'm Gonna Love Me Again. I didn't remember Glory. I didn't remember anything about those songs. And and so I went back and watched, or listened to them to prepare for this. And Glory, at least, is a great song. That, that was my number four, so... But those other ones, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know how that won. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I agree with Zach. This is an insane list. Like, my, my like, Dark Horse, like, I, I just love love that song. But is Man or Muppet from the Muppets. I just love the fact that that won an Oscar. Even though it was the year that there were only two nominees, so it was either this or the song from Rio. Uh, I just love the fact that that, that that won an Oscar. And it's a great song, but it's my number seven because there's just so many good songs in this. Um, all right, what do we want to say is our fourth? I'd say City of Stars. Yeah, that's that's the other one that's in my top four. Well, the problem I have with that is it's a good song, but I actually like The Fools Who Dream better from that movie. I think that's a stronger song. Yeah. The, I, oh, yeah well, Shallow's not the best song from A Star is Born either, so I mean, it's, I you can't really hold it against it. That's a fair point. Yeah, um, I was going to look at that here. Yeah, and that was a great year, too. Because not only did you have the two La La Land songs, but you had Can't Stop the Feeling from Trolls, so you had Justin Timberlake in there. And then you had the Moana song, Lin-Manuel Miranda going for his EGOT with How Far I'll Go. And that was an insane year at the Oscars, too. And the the most, I mean, the most popular song from the from the Oscar Darling movie is the one that ended up winning. But it's still a good song. I agree. The Fools Who Dream is an amazing song as well, but that doesn't mean City of Stars is a bad song. Um, yeah. I would I would be okay with going with that. I, I guess I would just leave this as the one asterisk, which is that if you ask people, like, just generally, what's a, which of these ten songs they probably know, I think the highest percentage of people would say Let It Go. Yeah. Don't you think? That has to be the most ubiquitous song. And I think, and for, but for a reason, right? I think it's also the song that had its run, and now everyone's like, "Oh, that song! I can't stand that song." Just because it got overplayed so much, but it is an outstanding song. Recently, I went and saw the stage version of Frozen, and the way they do that song on the stage is just outstanding. It is so good, but um. Yeah, that was my number five. So what is recently? I didn't think we went any places the last three months. Uh, it was about two weeks <laughs> before question. quarantine started. <laughs> it's like a dangerous time, man. Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. want to be out there. <laughs> okay. I think it's really interesting that we mentioned two cast members of Uncut Gems in this segment. I never made that connection before, but <laughs> has to be pointed out. That's a, that's a good... That's a good call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with City of Stars. Let's do it. Yeah, I th- City of Stars or Let It Go. That's what we got to go with, I think. Another but, but John Legend of, movie. City of Stars is such a unique <laughs> song, too. It's like, it doesn't sound like any of the other songs. And again, it was it, it's such a huge song in that movie. I mean, it had a major role in that story. So I 
I think your argument makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right, let's go City of Stars. So my top four are the four we're going with, which is awesome. So it's Glory from Selma, Skyfall from Skyfall, Shallow from A Star is Born, and City of Stars from La La Land is our Mount Rushmore. That was my top four. That was your top four as well? Yeah. Well, hey, perfect. So, uh, Todd, if if the Moon Song had somehow beat Let It Go, would the Moon Song have been in your top top four? I don't know. I, I can't even remember that song necessarily at the moment. I would have to listen to it again. But it's possible. Probable. Because that was one of those nominations that was a little out there when it happened. But defenders of the film like you, I'm sure, were very pleased at that. The other, yeah, yeah I mean, the, anything that movie could have gotten would have been, would have been awesome. The other year that was awesome was 2014 when Glory won. It beat uh, Lost Stars from Begin Again, which is just a great song. And then also beat Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie, which might be one of the coolest nominations to come out of the last decade. The fact that we can say Oscar-nominated Andy Samberg is, um, is he wasn't really... He was part of that. Oh, that's right. He didn't get... I mean, he wrote He wrote the song. It's, that's ridiculous. He, was, he sang at the Oscars, though. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how they work those rules. Yeah, that was... If he didn't get a nomination, that's just stupid. Okay. Moving on, power rankings time. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm gonna pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Okay, Todd won our game last time. Todd picked our category. Todd, what are we looking at here? Uh, so I had a couple ideas. One of them was sort of like shot down slash delayed. So we, I went with something that I came up with on the spot, which is the worst performances in movies that you give four stars to, which for me is difficult because usually act, if there's like a really bad performance, it usually takes it down like a, at least a half star rating automatically for me. So this, they, I had to really dig deep to find bad performances in movies that I, I give four stars to, which are, is usually... Uh, designated for things that are as close to perfect as I can find. So, I think it'll be fun, and I'm interested to see what we all come up with. It's not just a decade list; it could go back in any any year for 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 this list. Yeah, this list was hard. It was really hard because, yeah, like you said, you've got if you're gonna give something four stars, you're saying it's it's like a near or is a perfect movie, and so to say that there's a bad performance in it is just I mean, you're saying that it's not a perfect movie, then. It, it's it's tough. Zach, did you find this tough, too? I found this extremely tough and extremely fun, which is the best kind of tough to have. Yes, I will say I will say you were right with that. And, and what made it tough is um, to find those bad performances, I felt like you had to, like, go and be nitpick on some really minor characters... And some of these movies, it had been a while since I'd seen them. So to find those those like really tiny minor characters that we would like say is our worst performance in a deep dive was hard to do if I hadn't seen the movie in ten years. So yeah, this is this is gonna be interesting to see how this goes. I'm gonna go first. Um, one of the rules I put on uh, I put on my list is I could not pick any performance from a film that we've done a deep dive of 
because in our deep dives we talk about the worst performance from that movie. So I just tried to stay away from those from those performances. So four star movies that we've done a deep dive of, I did not pick any movie any roles from that. That makes sense. Yeah. So uh, number five on my list is um, I don't know this if it's a bad performance. I always felt it was kind of miscast, and that is uh, Martin Sheen in The Departed. Uh, playing Detective Queenan, uh, I always felt like he didn't quite fit in that role. Being the being the guy who's the handler for Leonardo DiCaprio as he's undercover in um, in Jack Nicholson's organization, it, he just never felt right. And the chemistry between him and Mark Wahlberg always felt a little off. And Mark Wahlberg is so good in it, it, it just felt like Martin Sheen was always a step behind. And like I said, I don't know if it was a bad performance or if it was just really bad miscasting, but I never felt like that performance really felt right. So number five on my list is Martin Sheen in The Departed. Who would you replace him with? I, I kind of thought of that. Oh, that's a good question. Oh, man. I don't know. Maybe. Well, Robert De Niro, right? Wasn't De Niro originally supposed to be that? Well, that would that would make sense. De Niro, yeah, that'd be a good one. That'd be a good one. I thought De Niro was originally supposed to be uh, Jack Nicholson's character. I could see De Niro in that role, though. Honestly, I just off the top of my head, the a name that popped in popped in was Michael Keaton, someone like that. But I don't know if that would necessarily work playing with Mark Wahlberg, though. De Niro's a better pick. <laughs> <laughs> There would be some awesome banter between those two. Oh yeah, there would. Yeah, there would. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a scene with with uh, Mark Wahlberg's Dignam, and then you add in Michael Keaton? That I mean, that would be just some fast talking craziness there. I mostly disagree with that pick, Terry. I like Martin Sheen in that movie, but I will say he does have one moment of pretty bad acting, which is kind of right before he meets his demise if you've seen the movie um when he's in the building and then he lets the people open the door and he says got a light that's like kind of bad acting he's got a cigarette there i i don't know what that was that was a strange strange decision by marty there i don't know what was going on that's a gotcha moment right there (laughs) all right uh let's see here we're gonna go to zach next Okay, so I agree with Terry. Uh, I stayed away from movies that we've done deep dives on. Otherwise, my number one would have been Albert Brooks in Taxi Driver. But I, that's just because I like to shit on Albert Brooks, and I hate Albert Brooks, and it's not really fair. It's not really his fault. Um, I also tried to stay away from non-actors, but sadly, I, I got to go with this guy, my number five, because he's not really an actor, and he doesn't really have a big role in this movie. But, oh, man, when when he enters this movie, it is just cringeworthy okay it's cringeworthy to a pristine masterpiece that won 11 oscars deservedly at the 1997 academy awards the movie is titanic and the role played by lewis abernathy is the character of lewis bodine and he is the if you don't remember uh because you know he's not very memorable except for his awesomely bad acting um he's the he's the bigger dude uh with the watchman t-shirt with the smiley face on it. And he's the one that is part of Bill Paxton's crew. And he's the one that explains to Gloria Stewart that what happens in the computer animation of the ship going down and her ass is sticking out the door. And isn't it cool, man? You got the iceberg there and he's 
wounded. I'm dead. He's like geeking out over the, the 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 destruction of this ship that killed 1,600 people, and the the lone survivor who traveled all the way from California with her granddaughter, with her pictures of her horse, and she has to endure this fat dude who should work at a comic book store. I mean, come on, what is this guy doing? You know, Titanic is remembered as as the day James Cameron grew up. Okay, he grew a pair. He fi- it was like you know when Peyton Manning finally won a Super Bowl or something like that right this is like pre-titanic jim cameron this character this this fat guy with long hair and glasses in the watchman shirt man grow up he does not belong in this movie at all the computer graphic is useful but when he's talking about its ass sticking out and then going down to the bottom of the ocean then he says isn't that cool it just kind of ruins the mood okay yeah he grew up when he made titanic and then he spent the next 30 years making avatar films now I don't I don't want to I don't want to pick on Lewis Abernathy because according to IMDb he's actually not known for his acting he's more known for his um uh, uh special effects and camera and electrical equipment and he's only had 6 credits uh, of, of performances so I feel a little bad shitting on him but uh it's 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 a part that we don't need in that movie Fair enough fair enough once you set once you reminded everyone who that was I'm like oh yeah that's a good call that was a good call. I mean, I almost went with Bill Paxton. You could almost go with him, but I think he he somehow legitimizes his role a little bit more by the end of the movie. Um, and fortunately, Jim Cameron gets off the Mr. Bodine uh, ship, uh, no pun intended, by the end of Titanic. He chooses wisely about how he wants to end his movie. Okay. All right. Todd, number five. Okay, so I started out with one that, like Terry, this is, seems like more of a miscasting than anything else, and that is George Hamilton in The Godfather Part 3. Uh, and I just think that he is just completely wrong for that role. Like, everyone will point to Sofia Coppola and how wooden she was, but, like, it, it is this role that just kind of ruins that movie. Even though, I mean, the flaws in the movie are outstanding, but it is still one of the best movies of the 90s. Uh, he, he takes over the conciliary role from... Robert Duvall because he was in a contract dispute and they had to write off his character. So it seems like it was something that they just sort of threw together. And George Hamilton is just amazingly bad in, in the movie. <laughs> I think we should probably do a deep dive of the movie at some point. Yes. Uh, I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I would replace him. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard. I would, at the time, I would say I, I wrote down William Peterson. I mean, it, but it really is not a hard role to replace. But, I mean, he is just bad. I, I am I am shocked that I mean I'm assuming you're not picking multiple performances from the same movie. How do you not go with Sofia Coppola? I mean that's like one of the worst performances in a in a good movie of all time. Like that perform that oh. performance single handedly makes this not a four star movie for me. That's how bad it is. I've I've grown to understand that performance more. I mean, I've seen the movie a lot, so I mean that I, I actually kind of dig what she was going for there. I, I think she was supposed to be, uh, she was supposed to be sort of stale and disinterested. But I, I think I've only seen the movie once, which probably doesn't help. But 
it's an inspired it's an inspired pick i hear what todd is saying because i'm a fan of godfather part three as well i low-key think it's actually better than part two but you have to get into the sort of schlocky nature of it actually i think there are several kind of borderline bad performances in that movie but they all kind of cancel each other out in a a weird way and and todd's right you get into that vibe a little bit and suddenly i mean he does stick out as being pretty bad but it's like eh, is he much worse than some of the others so i dig it all right. All right. Yeah, I don't even remember George Hamilton, and I just need I need to watch it again. It's been too long. Okay. Number four on my list. Okay. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and pick on a classic. This might be like the most classic of all classics. Uh because I am going with number four on my list. Um Leslie Howard in the role of Ashley from Gone with the Wind. Going back to Gone with the Wind, this is like I- iconic, as, like I said, as classic as you get of a movie. Vivian Lee is just insane. Clark Gable was born to play Rhett Butler. But then you have Ashley, who is this guy that so- for some reason Scarlett O'Hara is obsessed with and would drop everything to go for and he's boring. He gives this really boring performance, feels very disinterested in even being there. Um, I mean, he's he's at, married to uh, the Olivia de Havilland character. I forget her name at the moment. Um, oh, what's her name? Melanie? Melanie. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's married to Melanie but still kind of has a thing for Scarlet, and he just is, like, sleepwalking his way through this thing. And you, if you really think about it, and the, when you're wrapped up in this four-and-a-half-hour epic, you, you don't really think much about it, but when you look back on it, it's like, well, how? why is Scarlet going for him when she's got Rhett Butler right there when he's just kind of this sleepy-eyed, bad performance? I, I don't know. So... Um, it, it, it was one that jumped out to me as I was starting to think about all the different, uh, all the different performances I could look at. And if I'm going to go and pick on a classic, I'm going to pick on Leslie Howard in, uh, in Gone with the Wind. I like it. Yeah, I guess my only issue, and I would say this almost, almost also about George Hamilton is if you're watching the movie for Leslie Howard, you're probably not going to get a lot of fulfillment out of Gone with the Wind. So <laughs> it's not, I mean, you know, maybe easy to pick on him a little bit. But overall, I would agree with the gist of I don't what think anyone was watching Titanic for William Abernathy or whatever his name was. <laughs> Lewis Abernathy. Lewis Abernathy. He, he uh, what is it? Leslie Howard, he works in the, in the role he's playing. I'm just, it's just not a very good performance. And it really makes you question what's going on there. All right, Zach, number four. Well, I I actually want... I'm just going to give this as a sidebar. I wanted to go with Vivian Lee from A Streetcar Named Desire because I remember her being really bad in that movie. However, I don't remember that movie particularly well, and it was not worth... No offense, Todd. It was not worth watching rewatching streetcar named desire just to have her as my number four so but she's probably bad i remember her being pretty bad doesn't hold a candle to her performance in uh gone with the wind anyway my actual number four i'm gonna get a little controversial here 
This is a movie that I believe was mentioned on our best of the decade list, on some of our lists, in a performance that was actually nominated for an Oscar that I, I wouldn't dare say. I, I, I wasn't actually rooting for this guy to somehow win an Oscar for this role. Unfortunately, the performance hasn't aged particularly well, and other people have covered this a little bit, and I, I, intend, I tend to agree with that, and that is Mark Ruffalo's performance as Mike Resendiz in Spotlight. And, you know, it's... it's uh, obviously a really good movie and I think you can understand a little bit more about what Mark Ruffalo was trying to do uh, when you watch him side by side with the real Mike Resendez, which I did prior to this podcast, of course, very important research. And he tries to emulate some of the same facial expressions and you can see, you can actually almost see it. And Mark Ruffalo is obviously a good actor. But if you don't have that kind of context, then I think the resent the performance comes off as really showy and almost like kind of bizarre. Like he does these kind of bizarre face mannerisms. And then there are scenes where like his eye is kind of popping out and he talks out of one side of his mouth and then he goes on jogs, but it doesn't really look like he's a jogger. And then of course he has the most famous or maybe infamous, infamously goofy line from the movie, which is, they knew when they let it happen to kids, okay? Robbie, you know, it's just a little bit over the top in a movie that for the most part tones it down a little bit. And that's the power of the movie is with its subtlety. And he's the one that has gives a kind of showy performance. And, you know, I remember the 2015 Oscars when uh, when they read, you know, the envelope and it said Mark. I was thinking Mark Ruffalo. All right. And uh, it wasn't Mark Ruffalo. Um, and I'm kind of glad it wasn't. I hate to say it. That was still one of the best moments in like Oscar history of the there being two Mark R's. Both of them were underdogs. They neither of them were supposed to win. I'm trying to remember who was supposed to win. Todd, who was supposed to win that one? Sly. Oh yeah, Sylvester Sloan for Creed was supposed to win. And then they come out Mark Rylands. It felt like they drew it out too, but yeah. I don't necessarily and like it- that pick, but I know we've had that conversation before. And look, I mean, it's going to age poorly because I feel like Marf Ruffalo is going to be known to future generations as Bruce Banner. And it that's just going to be also bad sort of context. And it just, it doesn't work. Again, it's not necessarily a bad performance. I think what he's going for, though, is like, it's like what Nicolas Cage would say was the future of acting in his Best Actor Oscar. It's just not, we're not used to it. You know, it's just, it's sort of strange and foreign. So who do you replace him with? Uh, someone not from the MCU. <laughs> Um, that cuts out like three quarters of Hollywood. Maybe Jesse Plemons. I don't know. <laughs> there we go. Do, do you see Perfect. in the next decade Mark Ruffalo being an Oscar winner? No. 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 We well, had what th- three nominations this last decade? I mean, I think that possible. was it. That, that was his Bill Murray 2003 moment. That was his moment. It passed him. I'm sorry. He's he's making too much schlock these days. It's not going to happen. His best performance well, was Foxcatcher. The kids are all right. Is the Ruffaloist Ruffalo role ever? I would agree with True. that. But I think True. I think Foxcatcher was where he was best. That's that, yeah. I wouldn't argue with that. Well, other than you can count on me, but that was yeah, you can count on me. Of yeah. the he three not- nominations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, Todd, number four. Okay, my number four comes from 2001. Uh, it is Karonji Calhoun in Monsters Ball. He plays Tyrell, which is uh, oh, the son. Halle Berry's son. 
And he's just downright ridiculously bad in this movie. It's like they just went out and tried to look for the fattest kid they could and didn't care whether he could act. Like, it, he has the same look on his face whether he's, like, watching TV or, like, getting spanked because he's eating too much chocolate. Like, all he does the whole movie is just sit around and mumble. And, it, and it, I don't know, it's just, it, it's kind of... It's kind of distracting, and it's just a horrendous performance. It's his only credit on IMDb, and I could definitely see why. I and I would replace him with another actor I don't necessarily like, but it would have fit, which is Quentin Aaron. But, yeah, Karonji Calhoun, I hope he doesn't get another role. Ouch. Well, I mean, the fact that he hasn't had one in almost 20 years probably is a good bet that he won't. <laughs> that is true. And so that would be a safe bet, then, I guess. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, number number three on my list. Uh, I, I'm going at another one that popped up uh, quite prominently on uh, best of the decade of this uh, of this last decade. Um, but I don't know if you can necessarily argue with this pick either. I'm going with um, Lorelai Linkletter in 2014's Boyhood. Whoa, whoa. Um, now, yeah. Uh, Boyhood, I mean, it was my number two movie of the decade. It is an outstanding achievement of filmmaking. However, you have Lorelai Linkletter in here, and the rumors are that, like, halfway through the making of this, halfway through, what, the, like, 12 years it took to make this, that she, like, checked out and was like, Dad, I don't, because, I mean, Richard Linkletter's daughter, I don't want to do this anymore. This is stupid. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. But she was kind of stuck. So she was kind of getting written out of it a little bit, and you could just tell. I mean, yes, she was going, she was acting out teenage angst, but she was also acting out her own teenage angst of "I don't want to be here right now" as she's delivering some of those lines as she's going through the last half of the movie. And it just turned out to be. I mean, there, there's a reason Rick kind of wrote her out of the story in the second half because she didn't want to do it anymore. She was showing she didn't want to do it by her performance. So she goes off to college, and you rarely see her again in the second half of the movie, which is probably a good thing, because, yeah. Number three, Lorelei Linkletter, Boyhood. Those are compelling points. I don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, number three. Okay, I'm going to continue to go in a controversial route, particularly, I think, I, I believe Terry is a fan of this next performance. Um, it's a movie that also won several Academy Awards when it came out. This actor was not nominated for an Academy Award. Also, y'all are going with, like, non-famous actors. I think I think it's a, kind of convenient to go for non-famous actors. Let's, let's get I the famous Martin people. Sheen. Let's shit on them. <laughs> yeah, but you know, Lorelai Linklater. I mean, you know, she's you know, she's just a, a spoiled director. I have daughter. famous ones from here on out. Terry is going with long ass movies and then picking like a small part in them. Well, that's true. Every movie Terry has had has been well over two, two and, and a half, half hours. hours maybe that's maybe that's the key. Um, all right. Well, well, my number three pick comes from Million Dollar Baby, and it is the character of Danger Barge played by Jay Baruchel. And again, I can understand why this character, I guess, is in this movie because he comes up at a crucial moment at the end of the movie when Morgan Freeman says the line, I thought I saw a ghost. I feel like that's the whole purpose of that character arc is just to have that one moment in the movie. Otherwise, um, Jay Baruchel's a good actor, but this is like way overacting. Um, this is like, uh, you know, 
know, Clint Eastwood just really not giving a shit about uh, the, the Southern accent and the manic movements. I mean, it's funny when he asks Morgan Freeman about how the ice cube got in the water bottle, but like it really takes you out of the mood of the movie. So again, it's that, it's that kind of hard line about where is it the performance and where is it the character? But in this case, I don't watch this, you know, the million, this is like, if I'm watching Million Dollar Baby, I'm going to fast forward through the scenes with Jay Baruchel. I just don't find them that funny. They really take you out of the mood. They take you out of the seriousness of this story. And uh, it's it's just kind of um, hammy acting, sad to say. You're going to fast forward through his scenes, his 30-second scenes, all four of his 30-second scenes you're going to bother to, hey, he, to fast forward he through. He plays an integral role in that. He's in the last scene in the movie, man. Like, he's he's an important character in that movie. I believe he's, like, listed fourth on... Yeah, he's listed fourth on the IMDb credits. He's a significant character in that movie, which is unfortunate. But, you know, he's a good actor, though. I don't want to shit on him too much. Yeah, it does. It does look like he's like when he's giving his little speech. It looks like he's like giving his speech. I to will the challenge cards. the Motor City Cobra. <laughs> I could live without that. Thomas the Hitman Hearns. I I love that. <laughs> I love that performance, but I see what you're saying. All right, Todd, number three. Uh, I'm going to my number two of the last decade as well, and it is an Oscar-winning actor, and it is Allison Janney in Margaret. Um, <laughs> she has one scene, uh, a scene where she gets run over by a bus, and it is excruciating <laughs> to watch. And not because it's devastating, but because she is just cringe-inducingly bad in that in that scene. Uh, she leaves her mark for sure, but it's for the wrong reasons. Um, it, the movie is filled with a bunch of crazy shit and a lot of flaws, but that's part of the charm, and this is not one of those charms, so it's just it's distracting. Um, I would replace her with uh, Ashley Judd. I think that that would have toned it down a bit, and she doesn't ever get these kind of good roles. <laughs> would have but, toned uh, it down with Ashley Judd. Wow, that's saying something. Well, I, I mean, yeah, you gotta go watch that scene again. Uh, Allison Janney, I, it, I mean, it pains me to say it, but yeah, she is my number three. I, I'm not gonna go watch that scene again. <laughs> Because yeah, that was that was a horrible scene, and Anna Paquin was just as bad as Allison Janney in it, I think. But that is incorrect. Yeah, I know, I know, and, I know. And, Mar- and who can forget Mark Ruffalo, who was better in that movie than he was in Spotlight? I think. I don't know if I'd say that. I don't know. Oh uh, yeah, he's pretty. He is pretty good in the in, as the bus in, driver. Yeah, you know what he is pretty good in Collateral. <laughs> there we go. What, does he even have a line in that <laughs> in Collateral? Yeah. yeah, he's the detective. He's the one that's uh, that uh, figures everything out and is trying to help Jamie Foxx. Oh, okay, so Statham doesn't have a line. Yeah, no, Sta- Statham like, has, has like, one line when he drops off the briefcase. But, no, Ruffalo actually is in a good part of the movie. Okay. He's the one that actually Guys, figures have, it out. I have some breaking news. Mark Ruffalo is the new Greg Kinnear. <laughs> All right. Oh, okay. 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 So every every recasting, we got to put Mark Ruffalo in now and Greg Kinnear. I think so. Yeah. Okay. And Peter Simonishek. And Peter Simonishek. Peter Simonishek. It's been a while. Sure. Like I'd say it's been like a good six months since Peter Simonishek has popped up in a recasting. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Number two on my list is the one Oscar-nominated performance on my list. <clears throat> it's not going to pop up on your guys' list because. You guys wouldn't give this movie four stars, but this is a very, very Terry movie. I actually just rewatched this in the last couple weeks. We bought a zoo. 
No, no, no. But and I'm I'm sticking with it. I'm sticking with its four star rating. I'm going with Dan Aykroyd and Driving Miss Daisy. Um, I I love this movie. It is it has got it's got all the feels in it. Morgan Freeman is outstanding in this movie. Uh, Jessica Tandy does a great job. But what is up with Dan Aykroyd in that accent? It is just it just takes you out of every scene that he's in. Um. And otherwise, and otherwise, a decent performance. But that accent just—I mean, how does the Academy give him an Oscar nomination for that accent? It just—it just is bizarre. And for him to be like the first of the SNL guys to get an Oscar nomination for that is reason enough to put it on the list. If this is a movie you love that much, so number two on my list: Dan Aykroyd in Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> but yeah, not not close to four stars. I love that movie. It's such a good movie. It's so good. So what? It would it'd be like if Colin Jost was cast in Green Book or like something like that? <laughs> yes. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> All right, Zach, number two. Okay, number two is another Oscar uh, movie from the 90s. Um, I would also say I'm not sure if this is a four-star movie for either of you. I'm actually honestly not sure if it's a four-star movie for me anymore, but there was a time in my life when I really liked this movie. And it is uh, Jane Campion's The Piano. Jane Campion also made In the Cut, which also had Mark Ruffalo in it, by the way. But The Piano was the movie that kind of launched her into stardom. And the performance that I think is uh, not so great in that movie is Harvey Keitel as George Baines. Um, he has the kind of, uh, Maori tribal markings on his face and he's supposed to be a man who lives in the jungle. Um, and he, you know, like communicates with the Maoris and he's like, he has this strange accent that sounds like a mixture of a New Zealand accent and an Irish accent, but sometimes you can hear the New York city accent in there. Um, and then, uh, he drops trow several times in this movie and, uh, yeah, that, that doesn't age well either in the Me Too era. And he begins the sexual tyst with, uh, uh, Holly Hunter, who just finds him irresistible, even though he's basically a sexual predator in the movie. So, um, all that said, you know, Harvey Keitel, yeah, he's a good actor. He's been a lot of good stuff. Not, not his finest hour for this movie in a movie that had two Oscar winning performances. He was not nominated, not surprisingly. And, uh, yeah, he kind of, he kind of brings the whole movie down not just his pants the whole movie i barely remember that he's in that movie which probably isn't a good sign that's a good pick i I'm, i think i might actually give i'll see what my rating is close to four stars i think it's three and a half so yeah i wouldn't have qualified yeah, it's it's an interesting watch in the Me Too era, especially knowing that you know Miramax produced it. Um, the scenes with Harvey Keitel do not age well in in that movie. So again, is is it a bad performance or is it a bad role? I don't know, but it's one of those things where it's probably just better to fast forward. All right, all right, Todd, number two. My number two is another Oscar winner, not for acting, and there's a reason for that, and that is Quentin Tarantino in Django Unchained. Yes! yes. Hoping Great someone would call. have this. It's got to be the most narcissistic thing in the world to cast yourself as an Australian when you're going to go about it in the laziest way, even lazier than Aldo Rain trying to do Italian. Like, 
Yeah. This is his one scene in the movie, and it is bad. And I honestly kind of like Tarantino as an actor. I think he's really good in From Dust Till Dawn and uh, Desperado and stuff. But like, man, what the hell was that? I mean, it's a, it's the last half hour of the movie. Like, come on. Like, you could have recast like literally anyone. Like, I mean, how about hey Mel Gibson? Like, hey, there you go. He could have he could have been asleep and still done better than Tarantino. Literally anybody. Because it's not, not Harvey Keitel, he doesn't do Australian accents. Well, well it's not even the fact he, that it's a bad Australian accent; it's the fact that it's Quentin Tarantino. I mean, it just like 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 you said, Todd, it just takes you out of that moment. So it's like Tarantino. Yeah. He's an Australian. What? <laughs> well, it also occurs at like a climactic moment of the story. Like it's after you know Candy has been killed, right? And like Django has been taken away and imprisoned, and it's like we're really in this. We're, we want to see what happens to this character, and it's like, oh, there's Quentin in a, in a hat, in an Australian accent. It absolutely takes you out of the mood. You know who should play that role? Nicholas Cage. <laughs> of course, might as well. That would work too. I mean, he played Fu Manchu. Okay, uh, number one on my list. Uh, this is this is a all right. This is kind of nitpicky, but I it is the performance. One of the first performances I've thought of because it is an amazing like masterpiece of a movie. Again, probably only a Terry movie, and I'd be the only one that this would qualify for. But this performance always like pissed me off because it is so bad. It just like insanely takes you out of the moment so i'm going with uh, a film from 2001 it is frank darabont's the majestic and the role is hal halbrook as congressman doyle um you may not even remember that hal halbrook is in this movie but oscar nominated hal halbrook is the congressman that is running the senate hearing uh at the end of the movie where jim carrey is on trial <laughs> Uh, if you've never seen the movie, he gets, he becomes one of the blacklisted, uh, Hollywood screenwriters during the whole, um, the whole Red Scare. And Hal Holbrook is running the Senate hearing as he's giving, as Jim Carrey's giving this impassioned speech. And, and it is such bad acting that I was shocked, shocked after I saw this and found out that, the actor who played that role was actually an actor of note because it looked like someone like, Oh, I'm going to give my, it's like Darabont said, I'm going to give my dad a role in this movie. So I'm going to make him this guy who's going to just hit his gavel and yell at Jim Carrey for a little while. Um, I mean, especially when you look at, you look at someone like Harry Carey who gets nominated for an Oscar for doing something very similar. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington for doing basically the exact same thing. And then you have Hal Halbrook here, who is so bad, so bad. It just, it always made me mad for such an amazing movie that I love everything except for those few moments where he's on there. And it it kind of works because he's supposed to be like this, this enemy that you don't really feel anything for. And you don't because he is so bad in it. Like, dude, you're not only a bad person, you're a bad actor. And so I really hate you. And so, um, in that way you could say that the role is effective, but Hal Holbrook in the majestic just makes me mad. And he is number one with a bullet on my list. That is a perfect Terry. Number one. Yeah. And I love that movie. It's so good. It's so good, guys. I, I I don't know if you've seen it or 
or if you like it at all, but it's it's such a good movie. So could Peter Simonishek play that role is the real question. You know, I mean, any anybody could play that role, I feel, and be better than what Except Hal Holbrook Al, Al did. Albrook. Apparently, other than Hal Holbrook. Oscar-nominated Hal Holbrook. <sighs> All right. I'm done now. Zach, number one. <laughs> that was a great Terry pick. Yeah, I, I would echo that, Todd. All right. So uh, my number one pick is a little similar to my number five pick of Louis Bodine from Titanic in the sense that my number one film is a film that's told in a flashback. And every time that you cut to the present and this person is there... Okay, well, these people, because I'm, I'm, I have a three-way tie, so just bear with me for a second, okay? But every time you go back to the present, these people are there. It totally takes you out of the mood, and it totally just wipes away any of the emotional energy that has been generated watching this movie. And we're going back to Clint Eastwood yet again. We're talking about his 1995 movie, The Bridges of Madison County, which is my favorite movie of his. This honestly was always going to be my number one, and it is the three actors who play... Meryl Streep's children, although it's really her grown son and grown daughter and daughter-in-law, and they're played by Victor Slezak, uh, Phyllis Lyons, and Annie Cordley, and there's probably a reason you've never heard of those actors before, because they suck, okay? They are terrible in The Bridges of Madison County. It is like amateur hour acting. Um, you know, sometimes uh, Clint Eastwood has some goofy dialogue in his movies because, you know, we, we know that he doesn't do multiple takes. He's the opposite of Michael Cimino. He's not about the most polished uh, performance ever. He's not going to make you do a retake or anything like that. I wish he, he had done either a retake with these actors or just cut them completely because, you know, they're the ones that uh, discover uh, Meryl Streep's diary after uh, she passes away. And so the story of her um, romantic uh, relationship with the Clint Eastwood character is told in flashback through these characters reading her diary. The Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood stuff, as I said, is phenomenal. I think this is Clint Eastwood's best. I still think, in spite of these horrible performances, that it is Clint Eastwood's best movie. But they are so bad. And again, it's like, it, there's like a quota or something. Like every 25 to 30 minutes, Clint cuts back to the present with these characters talking about, oh, I, di I didn't know mom was into that guy from National Geographic. Let Oh, how's your relationship with your ex-husband going, sis? Oh, not so well, bro. How's your wife? Like, come on. It, it's such garbage like we don't need it at all and especially the son played by Victor Slezak he's like he has this like moral authority in the movie how dare she how dare mom cheat on dad do you think she had sex with him it's it's so like distracting and bad and his wife is terrible in the movie too it belongs in like a different type of movie it's almost like Rodney Dangerfield natural born killers territory like they're doing some kind of perverse sitcom or something it's awful and takes the movie down and yet it's still Clint's best movie so I guess there's that I was going to call you out if Victor Slezak was not your number one because we. I remember we've talked about that when I first watched that movie and I, like about how horrible he was. So if I had given it four stars, that would be not my number one too. <laughs> yes, his most notable role in IMDb is not this movie. It is uh, Hell on Wheels, where he played Ulysses S. Grant. I hope his acting has improved since then. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> okay. I like how we're getting very impassioned with our number one picks here. All right, Todd, don't let us down. Number one. Uh, my number one was not the first thing I thought of, but the more I kept going over it, it had to be number one, and that's Daryl Hannah in Wall Street. Ooh, yeah, Because yeah. when Charlie Sheen acts you out of scenes, that's never a good sign. <laughs> uh, she is... 
just lame. It's almost like she has a voiceover because she is so off that they had to like dub in something to make it better. Like she looks stoned, and it's not by design. I don't. I don't know what what was going on there. Uh, she won a Razzie, and it was one of the most well deserved awards given in the eighties. Uh, it's the only real flaw in the movie. Like I think it's a great movie. It kind of gets a bad rap. I don't really know why. I, I would put Jennifer Jason Lee in that role, or basically any other decent actor in the 80s. Daryl Hannah, I like overall, but like I, that was that was as lazy and stale of a performance as I've ever seen. Nice. nice. That's, a, that's a good one. It is a bad performance, but I almost kind of thought that that was the character. So, but I don't know. I guess it's just different interpretations of, of it, but... I would agree. It's not not so the finest So you're saying hour. that was like Sofia Coppola in The Godfather Part Three? Maybe a little <laughs> bit. I I don't know, but I can understand your pick. All right. All right. Uh, honorable mentions. Honestly, I had enough trouble coming up with five, so I have one honorable mention, and it's one that I would have had on my list if we hadn't done a deep dive of this, and that is uh, Ben Fong Torres from Almost Famous. That's my. Oh come on! That's my honorable mention. <laughs> He's good in that movie. <laughs> He, he doesn't the actor doesn't have a name so I, he, he doesn't he doesn't I like well, what I know we're when seeing. my lady tells me to <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right Zach do you have any honorable mention I have a few well like I said Albert Brooks and taxi driver but we already talked about that uh, a three-way tie between Vito Johnny cakes and AJ soprano in season six of the sopranos if we did TV shows Marshall McLuhan's walk-on and Annie Hall, which uh, it's just clear he doesn't, he can't see what he's reading off screen. Todd pointed out this one to me, Julianne Moore and Magnolia. Good call, Todd. She's not good in that movie. Um, I really like that movie, but I know Todd, her performance almost alone takes it down for you, right? Like, yeah, she's, yeah, there's much to be desired. Um, I saw a really interesting YouTube video that had a a theory that uh, Wiley Wiggins as Mitch Kramer and Dazed and Confused is not good acting, which at first I was a little taken aback by but then they point to the scene where he's flirting with sabrina and they counted eight times that he grabbed his nose five times he did a hair flip and one elbow nudge and i can kind of see it and actually they pointed to a later article where rick said yeah wiley didn't really know what he was doing he's a little amateur but i still i still really like him so i i would almost put that on there except i actually think he's pretty good in that movie um, I would also say uh, Nathan Tyson in Elephant. He's the jock, and he and but he only has one line really, and it's a really bad line. And it's about like he says, "Well, listen, you don't need to worry about having an abortion because we're gonna have a blast for buying, but you have to promise to show up." It's like so wooden and hollow. Todd knows what I'm talking about. That 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 character is awful. That should have been your quote and of the day. <laughs> well, maybe there's still time left. <laughs> And then finally, um, this was originally going to be my number one for Adam, but, you know, screw it. I'm just going to say it. Ahmed Bess as Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace. I, I don't think anyone actually gave it four stars, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Nice. Nice. Uh, all, right. all right. Todd. I got a few. I have uh, Scott Summers in Hoosiers. He plays Strap. I, I just never bought yeah, that role. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Gil Bellows in the Shawshank Redemption. I think it was Tommy. Mm. It was ever the guy that he teaches uh, to teach his school to or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I never... yeah. Yeah, that's a good uh, pick. I have uh, Ryan O'Neill in Barry Lyndon. That's the only main character I think was mentioned in all this. Like, he's awful in that. But, I mean, it's not about Ryan O'Neill. Uh, Julian Sands in Leaving Las Vegas as the pimp. Uh, just yeah. atrocious. Billy Ray Cyrus in Mahal and Drive because, obviously, and 
Sean Young in Blade Runner, even though she's playing a robot, I think she's even more boring than a- watching an actual robot. So, that, that, that's all I got. So this happens every time I hear one of you. Julian Sands in Leaving Las Vegas would have made my list had I remembered that. He, he's awful in that movie. Is it too late to change my list? Because that deserves, that's a top five mention. That's terrible. Take out Louis Bodine, okay? Julian Sands in Leaving Las Vegas is awful. He's the worst part of that movie. That's a Absolutely. great call. All right. Well, now we get to try and do the impossible. This is like, this might be the hardest of them all. Trying to pick where Adam's going to go with this. In his list of his top five worst performances in four-star movies, I'll go first with my top five. I don't love it, but it's what I'm going with. What I did is I looked at his top 100 and just picked performances that he might, like, bash on from there. So here we go. Uh, number five, I have Haley Joel Osment and Forrest Gump. Uh, number four, I have Charlie Brown and Kill Bill. Uh, number three, I have Billy Zane and Titanic. <laughs> that's his name. Yeah, that's his name. <laughs> number two, I have Mike Myers and Inglorious Bastards. And number one, I have The Wizard from Wizard of Oz. Oh, I could see that. That's a good pick. Yeah. All right, Zach, what do you got? I had Jared Leto from Blade Runner 2049, Katie Holmes in Batman Begins. Billy Crudup in Watchmen, Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York, and my number one was Quentin Tarantino in Django Unchained. Okay. All right. We have some overlap. I have number five, Brooke Smith in The Sounds of the Lambs. Number four, Jared Leto in Blade Runner 2049. Number three, Billy Zane in Titanic. Number two, Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York. And number one, Shelley Duvall in The Shining. <clears throat> okay. Well, let's see how he did. Here's his list. He says, when you give a movie four stars, obviously means that you love it. So it's a daunting task to find a negative with these films. I tried to think of characters with a decent amount of screen time, not just some random yeller at the end of the film. Well, there goes my Charlie Brown theory. Uh, I'm not too impressed with my list. Good luck. Hope you can at least get a movie right. Honorable mentions. Richard Dreyfus for The American President. Lorelai Linkletter for Boyhood, When She's Older. Wow. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sam Worthington in Avatar. Yep, overrated. Uh, Brad Pitt in 12 Years a, a Slave. One. Quentin Tarantino, Django Unchained. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in Seven. She's kind of forgettable in it. And he says Terry Plecknett in Almost Sideways for not even trying to attempt to find his list last time. Okay. Yes. I like it. Well, there That's you go. great. Okay. Number five, Billy Boyd as Pippin in Lord of the Rings Return of the King. I always thought he was the weakest member of the cast. He has funny moments in the franchise, but in this film they give him more to do, and for me, is still the weakest part of the film. He also gets to sing in this film, too. Number four, Matt Dillon in Crash. Another film that I overrated. With this film, he has the one storyline that really frustrated me the most. He's slimy and abuses his power, and it's sickening. Number three, Cameron... That's a terrible pick. I think so, too. I think so, too. Number three is Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York. Uh, The film has a fantastic Daniel Day-Lewis performance and also has Diaz, who feels like she's in a different film entirely. When you think Scorsese cast... uh, When you think Scorsese cast, you don't think Cameron Diaz. Her accent goes in and out throughout the runtime. Sounds like Elizabeth Olsen in the MCU. Compared to the other... Uh, actor, she is by far the weakest of them all. Yeah, that's a very trendy pick. But then why do you have a four stars, Adam? That's why I have to say. Because it's a great movie. It, no, it's it not really. It's not. 
Number two is actually a performance we've talked about already. Mark Ruffalo in Margaret. Mostly, wow. wa- mostly <laughs> wanted to put this on the list to make it known. I gave it four stars. Zach and Terry are both rolling their eyes right now. She's Zach probably us. has said, oh, God, at some point, too. <laughs> uh, seen it once, but Ruffalo, to me, wasn't playing a character. He was himself, and he killed a woman with his bus. And <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> Mentioned multiple times. <laughs> and number one. Damn it, Todd. Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Yes! I love this movie. Duvall gives by far the weakest performance in the film. I don't think she is bad in it, but acting alongside Jack tends to do that to people. She's an emotional roller coaster that is super uh, frantic and all over the place from scene to scene. You gotta be kidding me, man. We we all had moments there. I mean, you had Tarantino from Django in the honorable mention. I mean, Lorelai Linkletter being on his honorable mention, I think that's pretty great. But uh, And Charlie Brown. The entire Margaret scene. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, I, I, I gotta say this, though. I find it really telling that uh, the two people on this podcast that gave Margaret four stars also said there are two horrible <laughs> performances in it. Yes. Like, you guys mentioned two completely different performances, yet you're still saying the film is a masterpiece. But... But Zach but the said that's a, terrible. Like, Ruffalo's best performance or something. Yeah. I don't think that's the worst performance in the movie. I thought the worst performance in the movie was John Reno or Matthew Broderick. I, I told you, like, the, I mean, there is, there is a <laughs> lot Choose of crazy pick. flaws in that movie, and the acting may or may not be one of them, but <laughs> Anna Packlin is amazing. <laughs> It's a ringing endorsement. Oh, man. All right. Well, Todd, I think Todd gets the point for getting the number one with a bullet. I got two right. You got yeah. two right? What was the other one you got right? Cameron Diaz. Oh, gosh. Gotta be kidding me. Okay. Well, what's the score now, Todd? I have 20. Zach has 12 and a half. And Terry has 13. And you get to pick another, uh, another power ranking. Yeah, we'll see if my original choice works <laughs> in two weeks yeah all right well let's move on it's time to move into our trivia segment are you ready well let's hope so oh i forgot about this john void is a slap in the face this is going downhill quick trivia and for our trivia segment always we have some movies that we've been assigned that we need to watch uh, I believe Zach and I have movies to talk about. I'm going to go first on this one. Uh, because uh, Todd gave this movie to me saying, this is a total Terry movie, and you haven't watched it yet, so you're going to watch it now. And that is the 1980 Best Picture winner, Ordinary People. Uh, directed by Robert Redford, starring Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, uh, Timothy Hutton, who also is an Oscar winner for this, correct? Right, he won? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is a this is a great movie. Uh, you you're absolutely right, Todd. I'm giving it four stars. Uh, this is uh, an upper class family who has uh, recently lost a son and how they're all coping with it. Uh, you have Donald Sutherland who is kind of just putting on the glossy face and kind of just being real with everybody as much as he can. 
Uh, Mary Tyler Moore is the mother who is just ignoring the fact that anything happened, and whenever anything about it comes up, she completely shuts down. And then you have the teenager, Timothy Hutton, who is who is working through this whole thing. He ends up seeing... Um, well, he, he at one point he... Uh, he tried to commit suicide, and now he's seeing a therapist in Judd Hirsch. Uh, and those scenes are very, very much, very Goodwill Hunting esque. Like you know that Ben and Matt must have spent hours watching this movie when they wrote the Robin Williams scenes in that movie. Um, it and that's I, I those are like the best scenes too. It's Timothy Hutton and Judd Hirsch. Judd Hirsch is amazing in this. Um. I I think this is such a fascinating character study in just looking at these characters and how they're all handling grief in different ways. And, um, and yeah, I think this is a movie that you could really talk about and debate for hours just in the psychology of what's going on here. I think the Mary Tyler Moore character is fascinating. In, and she does such an amazing job and gives such a nuanced performance in how she's, in how she's able to, to portray this you know, wanting to reach out, but re- refusing to let anybody in. And, uh, yeah, I, I loved it. It was, it was a great kind of riveting movie, even though it was all talking, you know, it, I mean, there's no action in it. There's nothing really that happens besides just conversation. And it, it's amazing, amazing movie, four stars. Yeah, yeah I was I, a big fan. Oh, go ahead, go. Todd. Oh, yeah, I, 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 it depends on the day uh, of what I actually think of the movie. It's a three and a half, three star movie. I don't know. But uh, I think if you had actually campaigned Sutherland and supporting and Hutton and lead, then they both would have gotten nominated. But uh, that obviously didn't happen. And uh, Sutherland still does not have a nomination. Yeah, this was definitely probably his best shot at one. And he's really good in it. But um, I, I would say. Of the three main characters, he's probably the weakest. Probably. But he's really good in the movie. He's I mean, really his good. Scene, his, his scene with Judd Hirsch always stood out to me. I thought that was a great scene yes. in the movie. Um, I, I, was in, I was really into this movie for a long time. I actually read the Judith, Judith Guest novel um, when I was in high school. Um, I don't think it, it quite has the effect on me that it once had, in part because the the conflict that the Mary Tyler Moore character has in this movie, which is the public shame and the taboo of seeing a, a therapist, is sort of, um, I feel like, gone by the wayside a little bit. I feel like that's a dated aspect of the movie. I'm sure that th- those issues were relevant in 1980, but I think it's a little harder for a contemporary audience to understand her sort of the public shaming involved with it. But it's also her character, too. And I find her character, I always find her character kind of despicable in the movie. I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for her, which is another reason the movie is a little weaker uh, for me. Um, but it's still a really strong movie and definitely better than Raging Bull. I, I do have it rated above Raging Bull. And um, I, I, th- I think you're right. The, those, the, the public shaming of the therapist type stuff is, is definitely dated. However, like my favorite scene in the movie was when uh, Timothy Hutton is sitting outside on like the lawn chair and she goes out and just wants to just starts talking with him for like the first time in the movie. And and he's processing through all this stuff and he starts mentioning his brother and some things that he used to do. And the second she brings up his name or the second he brings up his name, you can see the Mary Tyler Moore character just kind of, you know, everything changes. And she goes from being very real to put on the face 
put on the shield. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm changing the subject. Here's all the things you're doing wrong, and I'm leaving. Um, just, just amazing acting from Mary Tyler Moore. Beautiful performance, I think, from her. And you're right. It's a despicable character in a lot of ways, but you can see why also in what is going on. Yeah. Also brought back to popular public consciousness, Pachelbel's canon. There you go. There you go. There you go. Todd assigned me a movie that um, was on his best of 2019 list last year, and that was a Brazilian movie called Socrates. It was also, I can't remember if it, if it made his best uh, of under 1,000 votes on IMDb, or he said it as an honorable mention. I can't remember. I think it was um, Adam honorable... had it on his list. Adam had it on yeah, his Adam list. Yeah, and it was honorable mention. Yeah. Okay. So now, Terry, you're the odd man out. You're the only one who hasn't seen this movie. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to reiterate everything that Adam and Todd have said about this movie. It is a really strong, um, naturalistic, nuanced story about this 15-year-old who lives in the slums in uh, Brazil, I think Sao Paulo. And uh, he's uh, struggling with his sexuality. He's struggling with the death of his mother. He's struggling to find a job. Um, very neorealist, um, very depressing, very Zach. I like it. It's a it's a great Zach choice. Uh, what's cool about the movie is I read a little bit more about it, and it sounds like the director actually had um, like teenagers work on the movie, like uh, behind the camera too, like doing gaffer work and best boy and, and lighting and stuff. I thought that in location scouting, um, it has a really naturalistic look, very handheld. It almost makes you a little squeamish watching it, but it's all deliberate. Um, I would have liked another act in this movie. I felt like there was still something a little bit more that the movie could have shown this character evolve into. I did. I did like the last scene though i thought that was good but i i wanted another chapter i guess um but you know the acting is awesome and uh yeah i don't know why this movie hasn't been mentioned more it's it's uh really really a cool movie especially i, I would think if you're a, a high schooler um wanting to go into filmmaking i think this would be a really cool and inspiring movie to watch even though it's it's downbeat and depressing but it's also a movie uh about teenage life in uh, a very remote part of the world for for many americans um but a part of the world that needs uh recognition and attention yeah, I, I think uh, Christian Mayeros, I, I think he's amazing. He, he makes my top five for best actor last year, and I think it's better than Moonlight. They kind of have similar premises. Like, I, 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 I love the movie, so I'm glad you liked it. All right. Yeah, I'm the odd one out now, so I may need to watch that soon. It's only an hour and ten minutes, too. Great length for a movie. Well, hey, there's a selling point. Act, apparently. Well, okay, yeah, but besides that, it, it, was, it was a breeze to watch. <laughs> It was great because it was I would, short. I, I would have liked would have been, another part. It should have been longer. <laughs> but hey, if that's the problem, that's usually a good problem to have, right? If you want another chapter to your movie, that's, it's true. that means that the audience is invested. You want more. Yep. All right. It's trivia time. Todd, you're hosting. What are we doing? All right. Uh, we are going to do something that we did one time before, and it was actually mentioned recently, so I decided to go with it. Uh, I'm going to kick off Terry here, and I'm going to do uh, Zach first. Ooh, okay. All right, I'm unplugging. All right, so we're going to do... Is this your... Margaret trivia? No. Please say no. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, this is uh, what you originally had done for the 2017 Oscar winners. We are going to do that with 2019. So we are looking at the birth year and birth place of oh. the Oscar winners. I Yes, good one. Okay, so we will start with Renee Zellweger. Give me the year and city that you think she was born. Okay, and, and so uh, you're going to uh, do the mileage between... 
I'm gonna right. yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna mark both of your score, both of what you said down, and then I will uh, hopefully not have that big of a decision, but I will do the mileage if I have to. Okay, I'm gonna go Lubbock, Texas, 1964. Uh, do you want me to tell you what what it is right now, or do you want to uh, wait? Wait, let's make okay. it fun. <laughs> uh, Joaquin Phoenix. <sighs> um, New York City. 19 oh I, I think i got renee zellweger off the more i'm thinking about it i'm sorry okay i'll, I'll get back up uh, new york city 1970 uh, okay you were actually way off on phoenix and really close on zellweger uh laura okay. dern laura dern los angeles and 1965 okay and Brad Pitt. Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1962. Okay. And I'm not going to I'm pretty do... close on that one, right? I almost nailed that one. Yeah, yeah, you you're pretty close on both I... things. Uh, I'm not going to do uh, Jun Ho Bong or Taika Waititi, because I'm pretty sure you both yeah. know that he's North Korea and New Zealand. So I'm going to have one, because if I need a tiebreaker, this is completely unrelated to that. So the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards were awards that went from 1994 to 2001. And the only time I've ever heard it mentioned is on whenever I'm watching Inside the Actor's Studio. Nicolas Cage, in those seven years, was nominated seven times. Uh, name as many as you can. I'll, I'm going to stop you if you get one that isn't on there. Wait, so say that again. The Blockbuster Movie Awards? Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. So they have awards for, like, best... Uh, action performance, best comedy performance, best romance performance, stuff like that. I've never even heard of this awards. Okay, so I have to name the films that he won for? Was nominated for, yeah, he had seven of them between 94 and 2001. Oh, between 94 and 2001. Okay, uh, Leaving Las Vegas? That's not on there. Okay, so. <laughs> Okay. well, go figure. Great list, <laughs> well, Todd. <laughs> the Blockbuster Awards. <laughs> well, <laughs> the movies are The Family Man, Gone in 60 Seconds, Snake Eyes, City of Angels, Face Off, Con Air, and The Rock. All right, well, this will give Terry a fighting chance, because I nailed some of those uh, birth yeah, dates. I I'm think. pretty sure okay. he's not going to get uh, Phoenix either. Okay. Okay, Terry. We are going back to uh, a trivia that Zach originated in 2017, which is the birth place and year of the oscar winners oh, so we are crap. doing that for the 2019 oscar winners okay and uh zach does not know the answers yet i'm going to do the math if i have to um so we will start with renee zellweger renee zellweger austin texas shit okay <laughs> do i do and i have to what, say what? city or does it just like yeah yeah this you have to say yeah, city okay. and uh uh, the year. Oh, and the year? Okay. Um, I'm going to say 1968. Okay. So uh, the answer is Katy, Texas in 1969. Uh, so Terry gets one point. Uh, Lubbock is what Zach said, so I have to find out what's closer. <laughs> I don't know where Katy, Texas is. <laughs> I love this. This this is the best part. How do you spell Katie? K A T Y. Uh, okay, well that is yeah. Austin to Katie is 137 miles. Uh, I think I think Terry wins that one. Lubbock is in West Texas. Lubbock 
to Katie is 505 miles. So Terry gets two points for that. What year did Zach say? Uh, he said 1964. Okay. Okay, next we have Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix, I'm going to say... I'm going to say he was born in West Hollywood. Okay. And he was born in... He was born in 1975. Okay. So, uh, Zach said New York City, 1970. Uh, the answer is San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1974. So Terry gets another point, and I'm pretty—I honestly don't know. <laughs> San Juan to New York or Hollywood? All right, you—you you look up uh, Hollywood. I'll look up New York. I'm already looking up New York. Uh, it's a th- sixteen hundred six miles from San Juan to New York. I think New York wins. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, thirty. Yeah, thirty-three hundred miles. So Zach gets a point there. Apparently, he, uh, his family moved to Puerto Rico following a religious cult of some kind, and he was born while they were, like, going up and down, like, Latin America. I don't know. Kind of weird. I was kind of reading about that. I was like, they're not going to get that. <laughs> but you guys, just happen- you guys just happen to be really far off. Yeah. Like, you didn't even say Florida or anything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, Laura Dern. Laura Dern. Um... So Laura Dern, I'm going to say, was born in Santa Monica, and she was born in 1964. I think we were close on this one. Okay, she was born in 1967 in Los Angeles. Uh, Zach said Los Angeles, 1965. So I'm going to give him both points, because... Santa Monica, I mean, that's, like, not technically L.A. Ah, come on. Tec- so, I, so I guess I could give you a push, but, I mean. No, no, no. We need to do the research on this, okay? Because Santa Monica and Los Angeles are very different. I tried to be a little more specific and not just say L.A., and so I'm going to get downgraded. What hospital is in Santa Monica, man? It's <laughs> <laughs> a valid point. <laughs> All right, fine, fine. I'll stop trying to be specific on where in L.A. I'll just say L.A. Okay, so we have a tie now. Three to three. Going into the last one, and I have a tiebreaker if I have to, which uh, Zach's already answered. Uh, so we're going Brad Pitt. Go get, Give it to me, Terry. Oh, gosh, what's the town? Um, It's in Oklahoma. I, I, I'm not gonna. I'll say Tulsa. That's wrong. But it's Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, 1962. That is exactly what Zach said, and it is <laughs> Shawnee, Oklahoma, in 1963. See, I mean, you guys are about a hundred miles off, but uh, you got you're pretty close on the year. So do we both get points, or neither of us? Let's both get points. Neither, Let's make this look impressive. Both, okay. Yeah, you both will get a point. So now we are at four to four. Going into the last one, which I have a feeling now that Terry is going to win. So, the only time I've ever heard these awards uh, mentioned is on Inside the Actor Studio. The Blockbuster Entertainment Awards went from 1994 to 2001. Nicolas Cage was nominated seven times. 
in the name the seven movies. I will stop you when you get one wrong. So for the Blockbuster Movie Awards, the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, and he was nominated seven times, and they ran from when to win. Ninety-four to two thousand one. Ninety-four to two thousand one. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, Con Air. That's correct. The Rock. Correct. Um, Gone in 60 Seconds. Correct. Uh, Some real award-winning work there. Um, City of Angels? That's correct. Yeah! Um... You already Se- won. Settle down. Seven times. Seven times. Okay. Um, There's no chance to get one of these. Um, For the record, Zach got zero. <laughs> well, I didn't understand the question. I think I was confused. <laughs> but even uh, so, I think Terry would have beaten you. He's already gotten four. I, I don't know. I'm uh, leaving Las Vegas. No, that was, what that was my said. guess. Yeah. The other ones you missed were The Family Man, Snake yeah. Eyes, and Face Off. Gosh. So, Terry I, wins a tiebreaker. I knew there were so I knew... Face Off was, like, the one I'm like, okay, there's something... There's another big one that I'm forgetting. I should have said Snake Eyes. I should have remembered that You were that never going to get Snake Eyes. <laughs> Family Man was in the back of my head, but I didn't think that was going to pop up. Yeah, it was, like, the romance category or something or family category i can't remember dude city of angels though i got that one yeah that was impressive (laughs) i win yeah all right so i gotta man this is the hardest part though it's more of a chore to pick movies for you guys to watch than to uh watch the movies you assign me (laughs) true yep all right Let's wrap this up. Time to move on to our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. And I won, so I get to go first. I have I have two quotes that I want to share with you guys, and these are both from Space Force. Um, so the first one here is uh, is John Malkovich's character. He plays the uh, the head scientist of Space Force. And one of the things that pops up often is the constant struggle between is Space Force about science or is it about military? And so so his quote is, I would like to know why my science budget pales in comparison to his orgy of death. So that that's, that's the John Malkovich line there. And then the other one comes from Steve Carell, who's the general in charge of Space Force. He says, cheap generals are like cheap enchiladas. You end up paying for it on the back end. It's <laughs> clever. So beautiful. If you found that funny, you should watch some Space Force. All right, uh, Todd, you're next. Uh, mine comes from the Barefoot Contessa, and this is the I think it was like the second scene in the movie where this comes up, and it, it's sort of something I think about when I listen to like a bad podcast, and that is Humphrey Bogart says uh, to. Uh, the uh, guy, the rich guy. The fact that you don't drink is the greatest argument for drunkenness that I know. <laughs> and that is why we do this. 
great line. Great poll. I like that. All right, Zach, finish us off. All right, I apologize for my for my line. My my line comes from my number two worst performance in a good movie, and that is Harvey Keitel as George Baines. And um, at one point, this is according to his IMDb quote page, uh, he says, "I want to lie together without clothes on." <laughs> that sums up his role beautifully in that movie. Why did I end with you? With <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have. I'm I sorry. Have. Well, on that it note. Does not sub- it does not describe this podcast. <laughs> On that note, we're going to no. draw this podcast to a close. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, remember to subscribe, rate, review on iTunes. We're also on Spotify, working on getting on more platforms. Uh, we'll come at you next week with another uh, podcast episode with a deep dive of another movie. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.